Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. The most often repeated commandment in the Bible is do not fear. It's in there over 200 times, and that means a couple of things if you think about it. It means, number one, we are going to be afraid, and number two, it means we shouldn't let fear boss us around. That quote by Donald Miller, it kind of sparked this series, and the truth behind it really sparked this series of, of looking at different people in Scripture who have been told not to be afraid, who have been told to, to fear not, even in some of the scariest situations imaginable. I love how Donald Miller, he's one of my very favorite authors, I, I love how he explains why this fear not command is the most repeated one in the Bible. Number one, we're going to be afraid. That's just assumed. If you've been on this earth for 15 minutes, you know. They're scary things. Number one, we're going to be afraid. Number two, we shouldn't let fear boss us around. This morning, we're continuing our teaching series based on these two truths. And as we've been looking at these stories, we've been looking at the stories of some incredible people. We, we started off with Mary Magdalene the first week as she was asked by God to be a witness to the craziest thing that has ever happened, the resurrection of Jesus. And this was so scary for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was because at this point in time, a woman could not be a witness to anything legally. If there was a crime committed and your only witness was a woman, that the case was thrown out. That was just the way that it was. It was this, this totalitarian patriarchy that existed. And, and even under Roman rule, they were not, women were not even considered citizens. And yet, Mary Magdalene is the one Jesus chooses to be the first witness to his resurrection, to go tell all the men about it. Beautiful story, incredible story of her stepping in, choosing to trust God in the midst of some really big fears. Last week, we talked about Joseph, the father of Jesus. And how he is in this really scary situation where he is betrothed to be married to Mary. And she goes away to Judea for a while. Then she comes back and he finds that she's pregnant. And he knows that he's not the father. And, and so he's faced with this choice. When the angel comes to him and says, take Mary to be your wife. She's actually pregnant from the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to Jesus. And you call him Jesus because he's going to be the one who saves the people from their sins. And Joseph is in this scary situation. And he chooses to trust God in the midst of fear. The main character for our story today is a guy named Joshua. And I brought a picture of Joshua with me. And I want to ask you, what's the first thing that you notice about this picture? There are two people in it. It's not just Joshua, right? So uh, every other week we've shown pictures and it's just been the main character. But this week there's another person in it. This is a picture of Joshua and a guy named Moses. And it's actually kind of incredible because Joshua is rarely ever depicted in art without Moses by his side. Because their stories are so closely aligned in the Bible. Moses was Joshua's mentor, his teacher, and one of his very closest friends. 
Now, to understand Joshua and his life, and especially to understand just how scary the situation is we're about to look at in a few minutes, we have to understand this relationship that he had with Moses. And to understand that, we need to travel all the way back to the beginning of God's great story in the Bible. See, the first five books in the Bible, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are often called the Torah. And they record the story of God creating all things, including humanity, which he makes uniquely in his own image. And the world God creates, it's, it's perfect. It's full of beauty and peace and goodness. But humanity chooses to turn their backs on this peace and the God who provides it and decides to, to go their own way. And this breaks God's perfect world. And the rest of the story in both the Old and New Testaments is God restoring this broken world and us, humanity, inside of it. Now, he eventually chooses to do this in the New Testament by becoming a human himself in the person of Jesus Christ and, and coming to earth to overcome evil, to do away with sin, to, to, to forgive our sins, to take our, our shame and bear it on himself and, and fix it all. But before that, back in the Old Testament and specifically in the Torah, God chooses a people to restore his relationship with so that through them he can restore his relationship with all humanity. It begins with this guy named Abraham. In Genesis 12, God says to him, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This was the plan, the, the original plan. God makes this covenant with Abraham to bless his descendants so that explicitly, so that all humanity will be blessed through them. In other words, he's restoring his relationship with Abraham's family so he can begin restoring his relationship with all the families in the world. But this family eventually would come to be known as Israel. They turn their backs on God, just like humanity before them and like we have done since, and they eventually end up in slavery in Egypt. And God uses this guy that we've been talking about named Moses to set them free from slavery in Egypt. He makes another covenant with them. He kind of renews his covenant with them. He brings them out of the wilderness to enter into what is called the promised land. And that's a place where God was going to give his people to live so that he could make them into this nation, make them, them good and, and pure, and, and to help be a light and a witness to bless every other nation in the world. He was going to do it from this place called the Promised Land. And this is where we meet Joshua in the story, in the middle of this, what's called the Exodus journey away from Egypt. He's appointed by Moses to lead Israel against the attack of this neighboring nation. And Joshua and his men successfully defend Israel. And from that point on, he becomes this key leader under the tutelage of Moses. Later in the book of Exodus, we see Joshua go up on top of Mount Sinai along with Moses to commune with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's actually kind of an overlooked fact. We, we always think, if you're familiar with the Bible, especially familiar with the Old Testament, that Moses goes up there alone. But explicitly, Joshua goes up there with him. And while they're up there receiving instruction from God on how to shape the nation of Israel into a people that love God with everything they have and love the world around them, they're up there and something really rough happens, really tragic. Just as Moses and Joshua are finishing up their 40 days on the mountain with God, we see Israel, again, turn their backs on God. 
It's recorded in Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I love that. He's gone for like a month, and they're like, we don't know what happened to him. He's gone. Aaron, you're his brother. Make some gods for us. Let's go. Let's move on. He goes up there with Joshua, and these fickle people decide to just abandon Moses, turn their backs on God, and then ask his brother to make new gods for them to worship. And I, but I want to focus in on this story from an often overlooked perspective, and that's the perspective of our main character today, Joshua. He has been up on the mountain with God, the only one up there besides Moses. I mean, can you imagine what that's like, just 40 days and 40 nights communing with God, and he's teaching you, he's pouring into you on how to shape this nation into one that will love him and love the world around him so that he can enact this plan to restore the brokenness of the world. What an amazing 40 days and 40 nights. But then he comes back down to find the people that he is supposed to be helping lead and care for, having turned their backs not only on God, but also on them as leaders. They're like, well, we don't know what happened to Moses and, and Joshua. They've been gone for so long. Let's, let's just find Aaron. It probably goes without saying that God is not happy about this, and neither is Moses. But instead of, of screaming at them or, or sending them away, Moses turns to God and he pleads for the people. It's incredible. This is what he says. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now... Please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Wow. Moses is begging God to forgive them, and he says, God, even if you won't, even if it, what they've done is too heinous and, and you can't forgive them, take it out on me instead. I, I'll take the punishment. Blot me out. Keep them around. He offers to suffer the consequences on behalf of his people. Incredible. And Joshua has a front row seat for all of this. He watches his mentor lay his life down for his people. This is what Joshua was taught in his time under Moses, servant leadership and sacrificial love. You with me? Servant leadership and sacrificial love. That is what Joshua was taught. That's what he knew. And after all of this, God, he decides to forgive the people. He, he listens to Moses and, and he renews his promise with the people. And they set off for the promised land once more. And when they arrive on the edge of the promised land, that's important, the promised land is actually occupied at this time. So there are other nations in it, and, and there, there are nations that are, are really, like, doing some bad stuff, like child sacrifice and sorcery and some, like, some, like, really sketchy stuff. And so they're kind of on the outside of this promised land. They're supposed to go in, but they're not really sure what to do or how to go in there. And so they decide to send 12 spies into the land. And it's important, these 12 spies are actually coincide with the 12 tribes of Israel. So the Israel at this point is 12 different tribes. So they take one spy from every tribe and they send them into the land to check it out. Ten come back and are like, we're all going to die. Like the people are huge, they're, they're like super tall, they're, they're, they're warriors, we don't know anything, they're going to kill us, this is going to be terrible. But two come back and they say, yeah, it looks intense, I'll give you that, but God is with us, Right? We were just in slavery to the most powerful nation on earth at the time, Egypt. And you remember what God did there? I mean, I mean he, he, he radically, miraculously took us out of slavery in Egypt. 
These people in the promised land are no big deal. If he's with us, yeah, they're big, yeah, they're scary. But if God's with us, who can be against us? We've got this. And of those two guys, one of them is named Caleb, and the other one is our main character, Joshua. And everyone in the camp believes the ten, not Caleb and Joshua, and, and they kind of begin to freak out, everybody in the camp. They begin to say things like, if only we had died in Egypt, if only we had died in this wilderness, if God had not provided the, the food and the drink that we needed, we would have just died, it would have been so much better, or maybe, maybe we can get a, a new leader and go back to Egypt. Remember, slavery was great. Let's just go, let's go back. And they start grumbling and complaining and getting angry, and as the crowd is in an uproar, Joshua and Caleb stand up and they say this. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. The promised land. It's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will overcome them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. It's pretty inspirational stuff, right? It seems like Joshua has learned well from his mentor on how to lead and care for these folks. He even throws in one of those 200 times of, of do not be afraid, trust in God. And here's how the people respond, literally one sentence later. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. <laughs> Joshua is learning. This whole sacrificial servant leadership stuff is difficult. It's hard. It doesn't always work. The people of Israel refuse to enter the promised land at this point. And God honors that choice. He allows this generation to wander around until all of them die off and then basically ask the next generation, okay, do you want to try to go into the promised land? And after wandering around for 40 years, and listen to this, a trip that was supposed to take two weeks, from Sinai to the promised land is a two-week journey. And because they refused, because they said no, God honored it, and for 40 years they wandered. After all of that, this next generation, they say yes. But right before they go in, Moses dies. Right before they go in. The last chapter of the last book in the Torah, Deuteronomy, records it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, now remember son of Nun, that's going to be important later, so just kind of tuck that away. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord commanded Moses. That last paragraph is, is super important in our story. So Moses lays his hands on Joshua and basically passes the torch of leadership on to him. In fact, this, this practice of laying of hands, it's a really ancient practice, and it's actually something that we still practice today. We've done it in our church a bunch of times here at Restore. We've brought people up on stage. We've laid hands on them. We've prayed over them. We've sent them literally all over the world to, to do ministry and help people and, and work in nonprofits and all of that kind of stuff. And in fact, when uh, I stand over there after services and I pray for people, my, my first question is, how can I pray? But my second question is, do you mind if I just put my arm, my hand on you while, while we pray? You know, because there's, there's something powerful about that. Appropriate touch is a, is a beautiful thing. It conveys solidarity and, and empathy. It says, I'm with you. 
It gives us comfort when we aren't doing well, peace when we are nervous, and strength when we are afraid. I, I know so much about this because it's happened to me. It was one of the most impactful moments of my life. I brought a picture with me to show you. So that's a picture. If you can't tell, that's me in the middle with the bald and the glasses and the beard. That's, that's this. And then immediately to my right here, that is my wife, Amy. And we were at the church I was on staff with before we moved here to Austin to start Restore. And the really tall guy on the right is Pete, Pete Briscoe. And the lady in the purple on the left is his wife, Libby. Pete was my pastor during three years on staff at Ventry and has continued to be in the four years since we've left. And so in this picture, it's, it's people that you don't know, but it's Pete and Libby and Sandra and Kevin and John and Joanne and Robbie and Mike and many others that gathered around us that morning. They laid hands on us, they prayed for us, and they passed the torch. Two weeks later, we loaded up everything we had in a U-Haul and we drove down here to Austin. Now, I don't know exactly what it was like, what, what the ceremony looked like or anything like that when Moses laid his hands on Joshua, but I can imagine what it felt like for Joshua because I felt something similar. So Joshua has the torch passed to him by Moses, and shortly afterward, Moses passes away. The story told in the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, has now come to an end. But for Joshua, his story is really just beginning. In fact, the very next book of the Bible is named for him, and the very first verses of that book contain the moment, the moment when Joshua is given this seemingly crazy task by God, this thing that it really looks impossible, but God asked him to do it. Here's what it says, Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses so I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. There it is, one of those 200 times. I have commanded you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The reason we spent so much time on, on the backstory of Israel and particularly Joshua's early life is so that we can better understand just how overwhelming, seemingly impossible, and scary this assignment would have been for him. Remember, he has watched God's people complain and disobey and turn their backs on him for 40 years, even after he freed them from Egypt, even after he fed them in the desert. He met their every need along the way. He has watched as these fickle people have turned their backs over and over and over again. 
He's watched his mentor, Moses, lead these people with sacrificial love and servant leadership. And he knows it doesn't always go well. It's not this silver bullet, this magic formula that always works all of the time. But he knows what it takes to lead, even when people are mad at him, even when people are trying to overthrow him. He also knows what the people in this land are like. Remember, he was one of the 12 spies. He knows how difficult this task is ahead of them. He knows how hard it is going to be. And I think worst of all, Joshua is being asked to do this without his mentor, without the guy that he's learned from and leaned on for 40 years. I can't imagine how alone he feels, you know? It sounds terrifying. But it's at this point in Joshua's life that he is presented with a choice. It's the same choice that Mary Magdalene had and that Joseph had, that hundreds of other characters in the Bible have had. He can give in to fear, or he can trust God and overcome fear. He can give in to fear, he can walk away, he can say, I know what this takes and I don't want it. Or he can trust God and he can overcome his fear. So here's what he does, verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go and take possession of the land. The Lord, your God, is giving you for your own. So that's it. Joshua chooses to trust God. He chooses to overcome fear just like that. I should be super honest with you guys for a second. I read a passage like that knowing all the backstory, knowing just how scary his situation is, and I am frustrated with the seeming ease with which Josh overcomes fear. I call him Josh. We're first names, you know, basis. Are you frustrated, right? He is like so much going on. I just described what it was like, and now he's lost his, his like best friend and mentor. He's just like, one verse. I'll do it. Let's do it. I don't know about you. But man, it's almost never like that for me. It is almost never like that for me when I'm in scary situations. In fact, this whole story hit a little close, maybe a little too close to home for me as I prepared this week. See, the month of May is is always super nostalgic for me. Every year for the last four years, I've spent parts of, of this month reminiscing about moving back here to Austin to start this church. There were five of us that originally took that leap of faith. Me, my wife Amy, our son Judah, who was six months old at the time, and then Matt and Emily Gonzalez. In fact, just a few days ago, I'm on a group text with Matt and Emily and Amy, and Emily sent this picture of the five of us that had popped up on her time hop from May 8, 2015. Really cool. We were at this fundraising dinner to help raise money to purchase a lot of the things that we still use every Sunday morning here at Restore. And it was this this beautiful dinner and this beautiful time where we were raising money and people were praying over us. They laid hands on us at this thing too. But I know it was just five of us on the stage, but there was actually a sixth person that spent some time with us on stage that night. It was the same guy who laid hands on me and Amy four years ago today in that picture that I showed earlier. Show the next one there. That's Pete again with the mic. This picture and the one I showed earlier were the culmination of three years of, of being taught by Pete. I watched him lead and teach with sacrificial servant leadership, not just at his church, but with his family too. We never went anywhere as cool as the top of Mount Sinai to commune with God, but he let me tag along with him, you know, anywhere that he went, learn how to be a pastor. 
the picture I showed of him earlier, the one of all the team around us praying, that, that still hangs in my house today. But about a month ago, Pete got up in front of his church next to his wife, Libby, and they told everyone that they were resigning. Not because of some crazy moral failure, not because she'd had an affair, or he'd embezzled money or anything like that. Pete just said he was tired. He was hurting from things going all the way back to his childhood. And they'd concluded together that he couldn't be a pastor and be a healthy person anymore. First, I want to say that I'm, I'm proud of the way that Pete handled it. I am. Even in this really hard moment, he was honest and he was humble, like I have always known him to be. But I'll also say that it was really difficult for me, and it kind of continues to be. I felt like I was losing my pastor, my mentor, one of my closest friends. And I've been wrestling with that a lot over the last month. And just when I feel like I'm not thinking about it that much anymore, it's not really affecting me that much anymore, God asked me to prepare a message on Moses and Joshua, you know? And as I come to the decision point for Joshua, after he's just lost his pastor, his mentor, and one of his closest friends, I get so ashamed that choosing not to be afraid comes so easy for Joshua and it comes so difficult for me sometimes. I don't know why. But as I've read and studied this story for the last few weeks, I've found myself praying for understanding over and over again. God, how did Joshua do this? Where did he find the courage? Where did he find the strength to trust you when it seems to so often elude me? And guess what? God answered my prayer. He took me back to a part of Joshua's story that I'd literally never heard before. And I want to take you there with me as we finish up this morning. I didn't know this, and you may not have known it either, but Joshua wasn't actually Joshua's original name. He was renamed by Moses right before he was sent out with the other 11 spies. The story is back in the Torah, a book called Numbers, chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, that is the promised land, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, there's Caleb. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. Remember I said, remember son of Nun, right? Hosea, son of Nun. And it lists all 12 and the tribe they were from and their father's names. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. You see Caleb in there. You see some of the other ones in there, along with Joshua. But he's not called Joshua. He's called Hosea, son of Nun. And we don't really know, like, how it happened between now and then, except for this one little verse in the end of verse 16. And here's what it says. Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. So picture it. Hosea is this leader of his tribe. In fact, he's such a leader that he's one of the, the 12 that God asked to go to be a spy in this land. And I'm sure he's gearing up. I'm sure he's scared. I'm sure spy missions like this sometimes had fatalities, right? And he, he's, he's getting all of his stuff together. I'm sure he's praying with his family and with his tribe and all of that. And he comes together. And, and I can just see Moses pulling him aside right before he's like, Hosea, come over here. I want to do something really quick before you go. And I'm sure Hosea is thinking like, oh, it's going to be military advice or, or leadership nugget, you know, that I can use when I'm in there. And 
He says, you're not going to be called Hosea anymore. You're going to be called Joshua. And for us, it doesn't seem like a huge deal. You're like, Hosea, Joshua, I don't even know what that means. People give me nicknames all the time. But giving a, a different name or giving a nickname is a big deal in this culture. It's not like calling your buddy Frank the Tank because he's, like, good at drinking beer. Okay, That, that is not what it's like. <laughs> this is like changing everything about you. Your name held identity with it. Getting a new name was like receiving a new identity. You may remember Jesus renamed one of his disciples. Look at how he does it. Jesus asked, who do you say I am? He asked all his disciples. Simon answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Messiah means savior. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. He renames him. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. See, Simon means small pebble. Peter means big rock. It's like a concrete foundation you can build a house on. By changing his name, Jesus says to Peter, you and faith like yours, faith that understands who I am, that I am the Messiah, that I have come to save the world, that is the foundation, that is the rock I'm going to build my church on. This is what Moses does to Joshua. He changes his name from Hosea, to Joshua, and by doing so, he gives him a new identity. You see, Hosea means salvation. But it's really more of a, a cry for salvation, like, like please save or, or save us or salvation now. But Joshua means the Lord saves. Let that sink for a second. Hosea means please save us, and Joshua means the Lord It's actually Jesus' name from our story last week. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus or Yeshua, Joshua, because he will save the people from their sins. By changing his name to Joshua, Moses was reminding him that salvation only comes from God. He says, your name cries out, save us, please, but I'm going to rename you to remind you where that salvation comes from, from God. The Lord is the one who saves. That was a message for the people of God then, and I'm telling you, it's a message for us, the people of God now. Moses doesn't save, Joshua doesn't save, Pete doesn't save, your parents don't save, your spouse doesn't save, your kids don't save, and I certainly do not save. God alone saves. God alone saves. You will call him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. My friends, that is how Joshua is able to trust God. Even in the midst of the scariest situation of his life, Joshua overcame fear because he found courage in God, not in a person. Joshua was able to overcome fear because he found courage in God, his namesake, not in a person. Man, I don't know about you, but I needed that this week. I needed to be reminded that my salvation, my hope, my courage, and my strength don't come from Pete, don't come from anyone else. It comes from God alone. Now, here's a really important thing to understand inside of all of this. God often, I would say most often, uses people in our lives to give us his hope and his courage and his strength. 
When, when Pete was teaching me how to, to lead and teach with sacrificial servant leadership as a pastor and at church and at home, that was God through him. And I'm sure that God will use Pete to teach me things for years to come, even though relationships change. But even if he doesn't, I won't miss out on a thing that God has for me. Because God is my provider. Pete is just a vessel. My parents are here this morning. For the first 18 years of my life, they taught me so many things, but they were a vessel used by God to tell me about his hope and his love and his courage and his strength in the midst of fear. I am convinced this is why Moses renamed Joshua before he sent him out. He wanted Joshua's name to be a constant reminder that even though God may use others as a vessel, it has always been and will always be God's hope, God's courage, God's strength, God's salvation that Joshua is finding his identity in. Moses knew that even after he was long gone, God would provide for Joshua. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. God is your source. God is your provider. The Bible says he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that means that even when people you learn from and lean on pass away, even when they let you down, or even when they just aren't around as much as they used to be, the counsel and courage God provided you through them hasn't gone anywhere because the source hasn't gone anywhere. God will keep providing everything that you need and more. It just may come from some places that you don't expect. So fear not. Fear not. Because no matter what you are walking through this morning, the same thing God told Joshua is what he is telling you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever, wherever you go. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word this morning. God, thank you for the beautiful story of Moses and Joshua. Thank you for what it teaches us. That salvation, that our hope, that our, our grace, that our courage, that our strength in the scariest situations of life comes from you and you alone. Open our eyes to the, the people and things around us that you might use to be a vessel, to be a catalyst for the things you want to give us, God. But help us always remember that these good and beautiful things come from you, the author and perfecter of our faith. You are with us. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be as discouraged because you never leave our side wherever we go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.